Let's jump into our passage today then. As you can probably guess, today is one of, those, one of the weeks that we're actually not going to be able to hit all the stories we were looking at in depth. Um, but hopefully you'll still get some really great stuff. So where we are now is Matthew 8. So if you're following along in Scripture, if you want to look at your Bible, it would be in Matthew 8. It might be helpful because we're going to jump past some stories really quickly. So if you have an app or a Bible or whatever it might be, uh, open with me to Matthew 8. So after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes down off the mountainside and a whole bunch of people follow him. What the Bible tells us is that many of those people were sick or hurting and they start coming to Jesus for help and, and he begins to heal them. He starts with a man who has leprosy and with just a touch, the man is healed. Now, I have to imagine that his disciples at this point are beginning to wonder what they'd gotten themselves into. There's this guy who goes up on a hill and he attracts people from all over the region. They sit and listen to him give a long teaching and then continue to follow him wherever he walks, many of which are sick or hurting or desperate in some way, and then he begins to heal them. Can you even imagine what that experience would be like? I can't, right? Just somebody walks up who's got sores all over their body, they're touched, and the sores are gone. It would be amazing. The wonder, the wonder that it would create, the healing, seeing people healed right before their eyes. And as we progress in Matthew, it gets better than that too. Because then they travel to a place called Capernaum, which, is a, which we have a map here, which is at the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's a particularly Roman region right there. And in that particular space, what we see is a, a Roman centurion who hears that Jesus is in town, so he actually sends someone to meet him. Or no, he goes, he goes to meet him himself. When he sees Jesus, he lets Jesus know that one of his servants is suffering. So Jesus asks him, hey, would you like me to go heal your servant as well? Would you like me to come back to your house to do that? Maybe you know this story, maybe you don't, but the centurion just responds, no, you don't even need to come to my house with just a word. I know that you can heal him from a distance. Which is what Jesus does. He speaks the word, the servant is healed. He also makes the declaration, I haven't seen a faith this great anywhere in Jerusalem or in Judea. Can you imagine what that would be like as well? In the ancient world, most people understood that gods gods were tied to locations, so physical contact was really important. To speak it at a distance was something unbelievably miraculous. But those kind of things keep going as well. Jesus and his disciples continue to travel around this region. They go to Peter's mother-in-law's house. Pete was married. Maybe you knew that, maybe you didn't. But she's also sick. And so Jesus touches her, and she's healed. She's actually healed so quickly that once, once, she, once the fever leaves her, she actually gets up and makes everybody dinner, which wouldn't be the thing I would want to do right after I'd been laying in bed, but that's what happens. She must be feeling great. So later that night, a whole bunch of people show up around the house. Some were demon-possessed, some were sick. And what we see is Jesus meets each of them in that spot too. We see him drive out demons, he heals the sick, and Matthew says he does it all with just a word. You've got to imagine if you're one of the disciples here, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that you're just amazed. That you're trying to soak it all in and figure out what's going on. But what I want to focus on today is the next part of the story. It's a short story, but it's filled with meaning. We find it at Matthew 8, 23, which says this. 
Then he, Jesus, got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Now, it's easy to read through this story quickly and miss some really amazing things that are going on here. Often you'll find that very few words in the Bible are wasted, if any. Most of them have meaning beneath them. So I want to kind of break down the passage we looked at right here. So first, the first question we have to ask is, whose decision was it to get in the boat? And what we see is that it was Jesus's. He gets on and his disciples follow him. We see this story in Mark 4 as well. And in that story, it's even more clear that Jesus is the one who wanted everyone to get on the boat. But, because what happens next? A, a storm rises up, right? Jesus takes them onto the sea. It was his idea. And where is he when the storm hits? He's sleeping, which is an interesting thing, isn't it? Mark actually tells us that he's sleeping on a cushion, which means he's intentionally fallen asleep. He prepared a place for him to fall asleep. He wasn't just exhausted from the day, sitting you know, on the edge of the boat and just fall asleep from exhaustion, which I've done in a chair at home from time to time. It's not like that, right? He intentionally went to bed on purpose. So the storms rise up and begin to sweep over the boat, and Jesus sleeps. So it's no surprise how his disciples react, right? They say, Lord, save us, we're going to drone, or we're going to drown. And actually, when you look at it in Mark, you get even a deeper insight into their tone. They actually say, don't you care if we drowned? Which does bring us to the key question of this story, doesn't it? question that maybe you've asked before as well, God, don't you care? Or Jesus, don't you care about us? Maybe that's a question you've asked before when storms have risen up in your life. God, I'm going through this thing. Don't you care? Can't you see I'm dying here? It's a huge question in our lives, and we're going to loop back around to it. But there are other details in this story that make it really interesting and help us understand what's going on in this story. What else we see here is that Matthew tells us that after they got onto a boat, that a storm rises up or it comes up, which is an interesting way to describe it. Because the storm rises up and we have to ask ourselves the question, from where? Now, I can understand if you were on an ocean, maybe, where you, did, where you had a just water horizon. In that particular case, the storm might rise up over the horizon, but we're in the Sea of Galilee, which maybe you know what the Sea of Galilee looks like, maybe not. This is a picture of the Sea of Galilee. Pretty, hopefully, actually, very soon, a little under two months now, um, I actually get to go to Israel, which will be pretty amazing, and then I can show you some of my own pictures. Right now, I've got to steal from other people. Uh, but this is a picture of the Sea of Galilee, and one of the things you'll notice is that it's not that big, right? It's a, it's a, it's a relatively large lake, but it's not huge. And so in this particular space, the, the language of a storm rising up is strange because there's mountains around it, and so you would usually think the storm would come down. Rain comes down, wind comes down. Down is the direction that you would be thinking. But Matthew's being intentional. He's trying to paint a picture for us. They're in the middle of the water, and out of that water he wants you to, 
to, to, he wants you to feel the storm come up out of the water, to rise up out of the water, out of the depths the storm comes, in order to take them down into it. There's a few things you can notice, again, about the Sea of Galilee. One is it's not that big. Right? It's not like Michigan. It's 13 miles long by 8 miles long. It's not super small, but it's not huge. And the second thing you'll notice, can we throw up the next picture here? It kind of gives us a broader shot. The second thing you'll notice as you look at the Sea of Galilee is that there's some things missing. Does anybody notice what it might be? There aren't any boats. There are one or two little dinky ones out there. There's also not any... There's not any resorts, there's not any houses, there's nothing like that around there. Which is strange, because if you had this kind of water in Michigan, what would it be? It would be filled with people skiing, snowboarding, or snowboarding, you snowboard on the water, my goodness, wakeboarding, uh, sea doing, all of that kind of stuff. You'd see it all over the place there. You'd see cottages lining every inch of the, of the edge of the lake, wouldn't you? It's not the way it is at the Sea of Galilee. <clears throat> There aren't ruins there. There's, there's not much at all. Actually, if there are buildings there now, but they're Western-built resorts, right? It's not the same. Um, and so the question is, why? Well, a big thing that we need to understand about this particular story is how Jewish people actually viewed the sea. Actually, once you realize their, their opinion of the sea, a whole bunch of other things in the Bible become clearer as well. You see, for a, Jew, for a Jewish person, the sea is the abyss. The sea is chaos. In other words, the sea is hell. In a literal way, that's where the demons and the devil himself live inside of the Jewish mindset. You actually will see the theme again in Matthew, and actually it's all over the scriptures. It's actually in the very first words of scripture, actually. Right? The very first words of scripture are, in the beginning, the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over what? The surface of the deeps of the water, right? Of chaotic waters. Later on in the book of Job, he talks about the Leviathan, a monster that lives in the sea, a monster that represents the devil. Beelzebub, the pagan god of death and flies, the name that's used for the devil himself, lives where? In the sea. Often in the Psalms, David talks about the sea rising up, even at the very end of the Bible, there's this weird line. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and there was no longer any sea. See, what John is saying there in Revelation is not that eternity won't have lakes, no. What he's saying is that there will no longer be any hell in our lives, any abyss. Again, when, in Revelation, when the devil loses, he's thrown into what? He's thrown into a sea of fire, Right? Like I said, once, once you see it, it's all over the place in Scripture. The sea is a terrifying place in the Jewish mindset. It's a place filled with monsters and demons. It represents hell itself. When we understand that, it makes, it makes, it makes some more sense of the final part of the passage we looked at. Jesus says, You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. And the men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. First, Jesus' response, you have little faith, why are you afraid? Now, I've always thought that was kind of a dumb question, right? It seems like the answer is obvious. Anyone else ever thought that, right? 
Hey, you're in the middle of a storm. He says, why are you afraid? You, I, you feel like you'd look at him and go, uh, are you kidding me? Like, you're not seeing the same thing I am right now? You'd, they wanted him to grab an oar and row, right? So you can see, when, you got the, when you're looking at the Sea of Galilee, you can see the edges, so they're trying to all grab an oar and row. But when we understand the, com- the completeness of the context, it makes a little bit more sense. In this, fa- in this space, the disciples are absolutely freaking out. Because there's so much more, this is so much more than just a boat going down. It's the abyss rising up to take them down into it. What, the, what they're feeling is that hell itself is trying to swallow them up. Right? So the terror here is a little bit higher than just kind of freaking out about a boat, right? You can kind of get into that picture. They're really, really scared. But Jesus gets up and he does what? He rebukes the winds and the waves, which is also a really weird thing if you think about it. Because to rebuke someone is to reprimand them or to command them with an implication of a threat. It's to disapprove of something, which is a strange way to talk to wind, isn't it? Because in other words, to rebuke something, it's a, it's a personal thing. Usually you don't rebuke things, you rebuke people, Right? You don't rebuke the winds, you don't rebuke the waves, unless you're talking to something bigger. Because what we do see Jesus do is rebuke demons, often. So when Jesus rebukes the winds and the waves and they go calm, it's at that moment the disciples go, who is this guy? Don't miss that statement either because it's easy to read over that part quickly as well because if you're anything like me, you probably would say the same thing, right? If if someone spoke and the wind stopped, you just, whoa. But remember all of the stories that came right before this one. We went through them quickly, but do you remember what Jesus was doing before he got on the boat? He was healing people. They had seen miracles. They had seen water turned into wine. They had seen dead people raised. They would seen the sick healed. They would seen him command demons, but this particular instance, this gets to them. This brings them to the place of going, who is this guy? Why? Because the sea was the abyss. Because the sea was hell itself, and only God has the power over hell itself. So they were amazed. Probably for the first time, they realized they were, they were with somebody who was bigger and more powerful than just a prophet. Prophets had done miracles in Israel's past as well. So I'm sure they were still amazed, but not in the same way they see here. Elijah did some amazing things, but he didn't have power over hell itself. And Jesus seems to. So it's an interesting story. It's even more interesting, I think, when we understand the context, but it does leave us with the so what. There's a number of things we could take away from this story, but there are a few things I want you to notice. First, Jesus doesn't cause the storms. He doesn't actually even enjoy them. He stands against them. Now, maybe that seems obvious to you, but it's not always obvious to us when we face storms in our lives. It's easy to say God is good when things are good, right? It's easy when we aren't suffering to sing the praises uh, to a good God, but when storms come, we start to ask questions, don't we? We start to ask the question, did God do this? And we have some unhelpful phrases that sometimes suggest 
he might. Now, before I say these, I realize that some of you probably have found comfort in these from time to time, and I don't mean to diminish that at all. But phrases, we say phrases sometimes, like everything happens for a reason. Have you used that one before? She, she has, yeah. Now, I realize that we often say that with good intention, and honestly, it can probably bring us comfort as well, but does anybody know where that actually comes from? It's not the Bible, spoiler alert. The Bible never says everything happens for a reason. Actually, Aristotle said it first. If you were to even just Google that phrase, the first person to pop up is Aristotle. See, everything happens for a reason suggests that God might have caused the storm we're in. True? Or what about the phrase, it's all part of God's plan? That one's a little bit more complicated, and I'd love to tackle with you over coffee or something, but that also suggests that God might be causing the storm that you're in. Or perhaps we like to say, God won't give me more than I can handle, which is actually a misquotation of Scripture because that part that we're quoting there is that God won't tempt us more than we can handle. Often we find ourselves actually caring more than we can handle, and we need God to walk with us in that. See, the thing is, when the storms in our lives rise, it's easy to blame God. Right? God gave me the cancer I have, or he caused the affair, or he put me through the stressor that I have. But in this story, though, and, I, and throughout Scripture, we clearly see that Jesus didn't cause the storm. Instead, he rebukes it. He stands against us, against it, not us. Now, understand, for some of you, that raises a thousand more questions about the nature of evil, about why bad things happen, and again, I'd love to break it down this morning. It can't. But what we, do, what we do see throughout Scripture is that the Bible asserts over and over and over again the simple fact that God is good. So if the thing that we're looking at is not good, cancer is not good, adultery is not good, loneliness, broken hearts, loss, whatever that might be, if it's not good, we don't blame God. Blame whatever else you want. You can blame the devil or the brokenness inherent in this world or poor choices that we make or someone we love made. Because if we're blaming God, we miss the fact that he's actually fighting for us. We see that in this story. Jesus isn't like the storm either. He stands against it and rebukes it. And in the moments when we see, when we see that Jesus is fighting <clears throat> for us, are those, those are the moments in which we finally realize who he actually is. That's what the disciples had. As Jesus stood up and, for, and actually rebukes the forces of hell themselves, it's the moment they realize, this guy's different. Who is this? Even the storms obey them. Even the abyss obeys him. See, it's in the moments we realize that God is fighting for us where we can see who he actually is. Because God doesn't cause the storms in our lives. He stands with us against them. But he even goes beyond that. See, God is in the business of turning ugly situations, turning the storms in our life, taking our pain and making it into something beautiful. He takes the broken pieces and makes something amazing out of them. Now, that's very different than saying he breaks it in order to make something beautiful. That's not what we see God doing at all, though. Throughout Scripture, what we see is that we, make, we, we, we tend to break things, whether it was Adam and Eve, they broke the perfection of the garden, or whether it's Israel, when God says, I want you to live this way so that you can be a light to the entire world, that you can show people I am who I say I am, that, I'm this, I'm, that I want to be with everyone. 
whether it's us and our own lives, over and over again, we break things. But God isn't in the business then of scrapping it and starting over. What he does instead is he says, let's take those pieces and make something out of them. And often what he'll do is he'll use them in a redemptive way to be even greater than we could imagine. Does God cause someone to be an addict? No. But who's the best person to help someone recover from addiction? Someone who's been through it themselves, right? God would, God would prefer that we don't go through the pain and struggle ourselves, but when we do, he'll often take those things and help us actually help someone else miss it. Does God cause a disease? No, but who's the best person to walk with someone who's fighting one, someone who understands what it's like? It's what, Paul, it's what Paul's talking about when, in Romans 8, 28, when he says, and, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. See, God doesn't cause the storm, but he does work in spite of it. God works in the midst of the storm, taking what is broken and redeeming it and restoring it and turning it into something beautiful. What we see in the story that we looked at today is that we have a God who does more than we can imagine. When the disciples are freaking out, they believe that hell itself is going to swallow them. What they, want God, what they want Jesus to do is pick up an oar and row out of the situation. What he does instead is he stands up with them, fights for them, and speaks against the abyss, speaks against hell itself, revealing to them who he actually is. Now, he's been saying that's who he is the whole time. The whole time he's told them exactly who he is. He hasn't been hiding, and yet they didn't realize it until this moment. When, God, when Jesus stood up next to them to fight for them against the storms of this world, their eyes were open and they go, who is this guy? See, so often in our lives, when the storms rise, we have a choice to blame God, to keep him far away from us. To say, you brought this or you could have prevented it in some way, and so I don't want you near me at all. But when we do that, we miss the opportunity to see that we have a God who wants to fight for us, who can take the brokenness that we're experiencing and make it into something more beautiful than we can imagine. Cindy and I get coffee often on Mondays. And we'll wrestle with that exact thing. Both of us have gone through some tragic things in our lives. Is that fair? And we've actually wrestled before whether we're, whether we're grateful for it or not. I think that's a fair way to say it, right? On the one hand, we're definitely not because it stunk a lot. On the other hand, neither of us would be who we are without it. Because what we've seen is that God has worked all of those things for our good because we've let him. We've understood more about who he is and how deep his love for us is because we've had to wrestle through those really difficult things. What we see in this passage is that God's desire is to stand next to you in the storms, to show you the extent of his power, to show you that, the, that the, even though storms in this world rise and they hurt and they're scary and they're terrifying and it might even feel like, the, like hell itself is start trying to swallow you up, that God is bigger than all of that. That he wants to ride the storm out with you and then on the other side of it show you who he is so that he can take those broken pieces and make something beautiful out of them. Our choice in the matter is whether we let him or not. Whether we choose to see him as the cause of the storm or the one that's invited us into the boat to ride it out with us. Because when we realize that he's fighting for us, 
we realize the extent of his power and the beautiful things that he can do in the midst of those places. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just pray that this morning that whatever we're going through, whatever difficulty, whatever storm we're facing, whether it feels like hell itself is trying to swallow us up, Lord, help us to see that you're bigger than that. The storm might be too big for us to handle on our own, but you're in the boat with us, that you desire to be near to us. Help us to see who you really are. God, then we pray that, that, that you walk with us through that storm and then in the end, take the pieces, the broken things in our lives and turn them into something beautiful. God, we pray that, that we can see in each of our lives the words of Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things you work for the good of those who love you and that have been called according to your purpose. And we see that in our lives today and throughout this week. Amen.